This is KMTT. Parshat HaShavua will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. This week's Parshat Shavua is Parshat Tazriah. We have the unusual opportunity this year to read Tazriah separate from the Torah. And we enter into the world of Tzara'at, which isn't a very beautiful or pleasant world. We're dealing with skin ailments and uh, people who are quarantined. And sometimes there is a certain uh, nauseous feel when you read these parashiyot. Um, we're not exactly attracted to the precise diagnosis and description of all these uh, things which make up the the condition which we call tzara'at. Um, however, we're going to try uh, not to run away into the world of uh, Lashon Hara or the reasons for tzara'at. We might attach, uh, attack those things next week, but we're actually going to uh, attempt to come to grips with Tzara'at as a phenomenon in its own right uh, in our discussion this week. I would like to begin by putting the parashiot of Tazriah Mitzorah in a wider context. And what I mean here is to understand that essentially we are dealing with an entire selection of laws which discuss the topic of Tumah and Tahara, purity and impurity. This process already began in last week's parsha, where we dealt with Tumat Ochlim. We dealt with the laws of Kashrut. The laws of Kashrut do not only relate to the foods which are forbidden or allowed to be eaten. A part of the parsha did deal with that in, in chapter 11 in Parsha Shmini. It dealt with uh, what we nowadays called Kashrut, um, forbidden uh, fish and uh, fish we can eat forbidden birds and birds that we are allowed to eat etc etc but that's only half the story uh, because the other half of the story there in chapter 11 is the question of again purity and impurity um, what animals or what uh, dead animals render somebody impure and how can the um person who comes into contact with them or even the object uh, which comes into contact with them become purified and this discussion of purity and impurity continues through our parashiot or our parsha this week chapter 12 um, with which we open parashat shavua deals with tumat yoledet uh, the woman who gives birth and uh, she the, after a childbirth the uh, mother it becomes into a state of impurity, and we deal with what exactly is the result of that, and how long is she impure, etc. We then follow chapter 13 and 14, which deal with uh, the condition that we call tzara'at. I think leprosy is probably a mistranslation, so we'll just use its Hebrew word tzara'at, because it seems to be a different phenomena than the uh, medical condition of leprosy. So that's chapter 13 and 14. By the way, Sarat affects not only the human skin, not only the, the body, the flesh, but it also affects clothing and houses. Um, it affects different membranes of separation of us from our environment. The most closest membrane is, is our skin. The second mode of separation is our clothing. And the last mode of separation is our homes. And we will attack this topic next week. Following chapter 14, we see um, yet more discussion of Tumah and Tahara, of purity laws. 
So there we see um, a description of various different substances that uh, come out of a human body. We have the Zav and Shikhvat Zera uh, for the male and uh, different flows which come from the man, either unnatural or natural. And likewise, we have Nida and Zava, um, the natural flow of blood from a woman, which is Nida, and the unnatural flow, which is called Zava. And uh, there is actually a conclusion to the Parsha of Mitzorah, which summarizes all of this and says, um, It says, how exactly does this whole unit, which stretches from chapter 11 to chapter 15, fit in? The answer is actually pretty simple. Chapters 1 to 7, uh, Perak Aleph through Perak Zion, dealt with all the korbanot, all the sacrifices in the Migdash. This is, uh, these are all the offerings that one may bring. Um, what followed was the dedication of the Migdash. In other words, the Migdash is open and functioning and one can bring korbanot, but of course there are there are rules of access, and only a person who is pure, um, only a person who is ritually pure, is allowed access to the mikdash. Um, and therefore, what we need to describe during um, subsequently chapter eleven to fifteen is what constitutes purity and what constitutes impurity. Uh, how is a person restricted from the mikdash or from the mishkan, from the tabernacle? And what makes a person uh, able to, to enter? Um, maybe I should add in this regard that uh, the default situation of a, of a general person, an uh, average person, really finds themselves not in a state of purity, but in a state of impurity. Um, as we read in the opening lines of this week's parasha, childbirth, a very natural and wonderful human process, induces impurity. Um, Shikhvat Zera, um, semen, produces impurity and therefore natural marital relations will uh, induce impurity, a state of impurity. Um, a woman's uh, monthly period will induce impurity and therefore people who are living normal adult lives will most likely be impure. Uh, which means the following, that the average person was restricted from the Migdash And if they want to enter into God's domain, if they wanted to enter into the Mishkan, they would have to, how should we say this? They would have to take a step out of life. They would have to move out of their daily routine. They would have to take a break from the things which were the normal uh, activities of life and step out of all of that and actually engage in a process of purification, going to the mikvah, and so forth. And uh, this shows that our entrance into the arena of God, our entrance into the Migdash, was uh, really meant to be something of an event. It was meant to be something, it wasn't something we should take casually. Oh, we walk past the site of the Mishkan in the, in, in the tabernacle, in, 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 the, in the wilderness, and we say, oh, hey, you know what, I'll pop in, I'll pop into the Mishkan, and I will, you know, I don't know, say a prayer or two. No, 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 that could not happen. One would have to especially, uh, especially <clears throat> engage in a process of purification, go to the mikvah, and what have you. And in fact, uh, the rabbis say that even a person who was fully pure would have to 
immersed themselves in the ritual bath, in the mikvah, before they were able to enter into the uh, temple. The temple is not meant to be taken casually. The mikdash is not an, a place which we just uh, casually engage in. It has to engage, it has to, it has to happen by stepping out of the hustle and bustle of life. You know, later on we, we hear the halachot of Har Habayit, the laws about the Temple Mount. And one of the things that we're not allowed to bring in is our money belt. Uh, what does that mean? We don't bring in our money belt. We don't bring in our commerce. We don't bring in our, our Blackberry. We don't bring in the things which distract us from life, which involve us in this worldly affairs. When we enter into the Mikdash, we are walking in God's palace, in God's domain. We're meant to elevate ourselves to a different level of activity and leave many of our worldly distractions and involvements behind us. So this is a, a word about putting Parshat Tazria and Matsura and the whole unit of chapter 11 through to chapter 15 in a certain amount of, in a certain context. But I'd like to give one further point of context um, before we move on to the, parsha, to the, to the topic of of Tzara'at. The Kuzari, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, in, in the book The Kuzari, the, the wonderful philosophical work, tries to find some sort of uh, principle which unites all of the many elements which cause ritual impurity. And he wants to understand what, what is it that generates ritual impurity? Of course, the, the ultimate thing which makes somebody impure, the aviyavota tuma, is a dead body. Uh, but as we, as we said already, we've seen that uh, dead animals or insects can cause impurity, childbirth, the um, strange phenomenon of tsara'at, or as we said, zav, zava, shikhbat, zera, nida, all these things can induce a state of impurity. What unites them all? And so in a famous answer, uh, the Kuzari says that actually all of these um, states of being, or all of these happenings, are related in some way to death. Death and dying. The ultimate state of impurity is induced by a dead body. But even if we look at uh, other phenomenon, they also reflect the notion of death. So for example, uh, if we deal with the end of uh, Parshat Metzorah, chapter 15, if we talk about Shikhvat uh, Zera, uh, sperm which is merged out of a human body, that is a unfulfilled life, the same thing with menstruation. If we look at dead animals, that's of course death. Sarat we shall deal with presently. Um, one of the difficult uh, uh, situations here is childbirth, of course, because childbirth is the production of life. But many people have still tried to fit this into the same overall heading and uh, claim one of two things. Either the uh, loss of blood, which the woman experiences in childbirth, once again um, represents ki nefesh, the life force is always blood, and therefore that loss of blood, the blood of childbirth, in some way also creates a, a, a sense of impurity. Or the other option is that... Uh, while a woman is, is pregnant and she holds the baby inside her, she has almost double life. And when she gives birth to this uh, this lovely child, and this child takes on its own independent life, in a sense the mother is losing 
that additional life within her. And that induces a state, once again, of impurity. In, in regard to this thesis that um, it is death that creates impurity, I'd like to read a few lines from Rav Soloveitchik's masterpiece, Halachic Man. And uh, I will read, read a few lines. Um, I'm quoting from page 31 in the English edition of Halachic Man. And this is what he says there. And again, I quote, Judaism has a negative attitude towards death. A corpse defiles, a grave defiles, a person who has been defiled by a corpse is defiled for seven, day and is, seven days and is forbidden to eat any sacred offerings or enter the temple. Um, and he, he continues in this vein that uh, it is death which defiles. And he says the following, Many religions view the phenomenon of death as a positive spectacle inasmuch as it highlights and sensitizes the religious consciousness and sensibility. They therefore sanctify death and the grave, because it is here that we find ourselves at the threshold of transcendence, at the portal of the world to come. Death is seen as a window filled with light over to an exalted supernal realm. Judaism, however, proclaims that coming into contact with the dead precipitates defilement. Judaism abhors death, organic decay and dissolution. It bids one to choose life and sanctify it. Authentic Judaism is reflected in halach- as reflected in halachic thought sees in death a terrifying contradiction to the whole of religious life. Death negates the entire magnificent, magnificent experience of halachic man. Rasulovichik says that as opposed to uh, a certain other religions, maybe we can think of ancient Egypt, um, which sanctified uh, death, but there are, even, there are other religions even today who sanctify death. After all, um, I don't know, Christianity, its whole symbol is based on, on, on the crucifixion, on death. Um, the, the sense that we do not celebrate death, that this world is a world in which we can progress. This world is a world that we sanctify. Again, I'll quote from Russell Avechik. He says, um, the halacha is not concerned with the transcendent world. Um, halachic man prefers the real world, here and now, to a transcendent existence, because here in this world, man is given the opportunity to create, to act, accomplish, while there in the world to come, he is powerless to change anything at all. So what we see here, maybe what we understand, is that some of these laws of Tuman Tahara, of ritual impurity um, and purity, are, are actually related to this theme of, of death. And anything which in any way brings us into contact with death is, is the opposite of life. And... That generates impurity, and this impurity, which doesn't really bother us on our average daily basis, we can go around being impure. In fact, uh, the way we understand halacha nowadays is that without the uh, para aduma, we are all at some level impure. However, the, the, the real difference is in entering the realm of God, in entering the mikdash. Now, all of this, everything that I have said until now, is uh, something of an introduction to... Uh, Parsha Tazria, because when we look at the this 
situation which we call tzara'at, this strange ailment which can befall a person's skin. Um, let's describe the way that uh, it appears in the Pesukim. And here I'm reading from the um, beginning of chapter 13, Perakud Gimel. Adam kiye ba'or besaroh se'et o pasapachat o baheret v'aya ba'or besaroh l'neged sarat v'hubal ha'aron ha'kohen o chami banav ha'kohanim Somebody has this strange skin condition and mark and what is the what does it look like? It says that the the way that the sarat seems to be is that the hair se'ar banega ha'fach lavan that the um, appearance is that the hair of this uh, spot or this skin lesion has turned white and the appearance of the affliction is deeper than the skin and when when we deal, what, what does it mean deeper than the skin the, this uh, thing looks like it's deeper than the skin well the we have a sense of, of what this means uh, later on, and you can see this in verse 10, where it says, It's talking about a, a white color, the a white color which creates a white uh, hair. And uh, the opposite of this white color is the notion of what we call basar chai. Live flesh. In other words, we have live flesh and we have white flesh. And this white flesh with a very deep or it seems like a sort of like transparent deep white color is, is the opposite of basar chai. And if it's the opposite of basar chai, if it is the opposite of live flesh, then I think there's only one explanation of what it is and that is dead flesh. Um, find this all the time. The notion of basar hachai perek yud gimel pasuk tetvav pasuk yud dalad over yom hero bo basar chai itma v'ra'ah kohen et basar hachai. The idea, the opposite of uh, tzarat is basar chai, is is live flesh. An example of this would be in the famous story of Miriam. Uh, we all know that uh, Moshe's sister Miriam. Uh, gets sarat, and she suddenly turns uh, white. It says there that I'm reading here from Bamidbar, chapter twelve. Um, she is mitzorat kasheleg. She gets sarat and as white like snow. And here is what uh, Aharon says: Al na tehi kemeit asher let her not be like a dead person or a dead fetus, which emerges from its mother's womb, with its skin um, eaten up or somehow decomposed. Sarat represents a form, uh, how should I say it, a form of the death of the skin. And the healing of Sarat is actually the notion of, of life. And this very much fits into the the context which we've presented here of Tuma and Tara representing something which relates to, to death. But I, I don't only think that it's the white color here which uh, takes this 
and the notion of the revival of the skin being called Basar Chai, I think there is, is much more to this. And let me try and elaborate. Back to our Parsha, back to the Tazria. How is the, um, how is the person who is afflicted by Tzara'at, how is the Tzara'at meant to act during the time when they are afflicted by Tzara'at? And here, I'm looking at, uh, Pasuk, uh, Perakut Gimel, Pasuk Memhe, verse 45. This is what we are told there. It says that the person who is afflicted by Tzara'at, Basarua Sheboha Nega, Bgadav Yufumim, um, so what are we being told here? We're being told about the conditions of what's going on here with the um with the Mitzorah. And this is uh what we what we read. It says and the uh, afflicted person who has this, his clothes should be uh, ripped, and his hair should be disheveled, and he should uh, grow his uh, hair. And we wonder who has these conditions, uh, which read in this way. Who else has this situation where we? see a person who has to rip their clothes and who has to um, have their hair disheveled. Well, I mean, I think it's it's very, very clear what we're dealing with. And we had one example, actually, in last week's Parshat Shavua. In last week's Parshat Shavua, we described the tragedy of Nadav Avihu, And there, in the, in, the, in the story there, we're told that Aharon was not allowed to mourn. Um, he was not allowed to mourn, and he says like this, chapter 10, verse 6, Don't disturb your hair, and do not rip your clothes. In other words, in this particular story, the Kohanim were restricted from mourning. Cutting your clothes and uh, having your hair all disheveled is a sign of mourning. This is repeated again in Sefer Vayikra, in Parak Chaf Aleph, the laws of the Kohen Gadol, the Kohen Gadol who is restricted from mourning um, because he is a national symbol. It says there, Parak Chaf Aleph, Pasukur, chapter 21, verse 10, The Kohen Gadol, the high priest who is anointed with the anointing oil, He's not allowed to let his hair be loose or his clothes be ripped. And he's not allowed to attend the funeral, um, etc., etc. In other words, we see that the um, these features of torn clothes and disheveled hair are a sign of a mourner. The, the third thing, the idea of um, what it says here in our parasha, where it says, the al-safam is also a symbol of mourning. We actually see an example in Sefer Yecheskel, um, that uh, not shaving is a sign of a mourner. And the last thing that he does is, he is declared as Tamei, Tamei, Tamei and he has to sit outside the, the camp, alone. Alone outside the camp. 
And the question is, this person who's sitting all by himself, sitting uh, in a state of mourning, who's he mourning for? What What is he mourning? In a sense, he's mourning himself. He is mourning himself. It's the strangest thing. The person is experiencing... He is, how should I call it? The living dead. Sounds like something out of a, out of a horror movie. He is the living dead, and it seems like he is mourning himself. Of course, this is only a temporary period. The anticipation is that this person will not remain in this state forever, that the Mitzorah, the person afflicted by this disease of Sara'at, will re-enter society. And therefore, no sooner have we described, um, the phenomena we call Sara'at, and uh, we describe its cure. And its cure is, is very resonant with one particular word. And that word, of course, you've probably even guessed it. That word is Chai. Let me try and uh, describe some of the ritual here. First of all, it's fascinating because the ritual um, mentions many of the features of the Para'aduma. Um we have, for example, there, Paradumah uh, is the classic function to purify somebody from the ultimate state of impurity. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because here in chapter 14, verse 6, Perakudala Pasukvav, we have the eight eras. We have the piece of cedar wood and the shenitolaat, the piece of red thread and red silk, Beta Izov and the hyssop. And all of these are features of the Paradumah only found there and here. This is a purification process. But most interestingly, this is what we do. We take two birds, and they describe shteitziporim, chayot tahorot. They're pure, but they're also chayot. They're alive. Alive. And it says, um, how do you, you have to slaughter one of the animals? It's not only the animal which is alive, but the water is alive. It's Maim Chayim. And you slaughter the animal there. That animal is not alive anymore. But there is a second animal. The second bird, which is still alive. You take it. You dip it in the blood. And you let it free. Again, I'll, I'll read the, la- the, the, the line. Because in one pasuk, the word Chay comes up three times. And what you do is you take uh, you you uh, take the blood and you sprinkle the blood seven times on the on the uh, person who has been cured of his sara'at and then you let the bird free. This bird is fascinating because and again I hope I'm not being trying to be too visual but this bird is probably a, a light coloured white bird. And this is covered with red. These are exactly the colours of Sarat, white and red. And uh, but this bird is is going is is alive. Rather than the bird which is killed, where its blood is is dawned, we suddenly have a live bird. And this live bird is going free. This live bird is going al It's going out to the field. It can rejoin its friends. It can go and fly free. Um, and this is symbolic of the freedom and of the revival. The one one bird has died, but another bird is full of life. This person has uh, left his death behind and is now 
uh, coming back into life. Fascinatingly, the this happens in stages. The person who has been cured from the Torah at this stage, now he just has to undergo purification. It says the first stage is that the coin goes outside the camp to check him. When he discovers that he has been cured, he brings him into the camp, uh, apparently. Um, it says, after this process with the live bird, he can come to the camp. But still, he can't go home for seven days. He's within the camp, then he moves even closer, back into his home. And after this seven days, when he moves into home, then he can go to even a higher level on the eighth day, and he's allowed to go to the temple. This is a process of re-entry. And I would even say more than that. The re-entry is in some way a rebirth. <laughs> How do I see the rebirth? Because if you look in chapter 14, verse 9, Perak Yudalad, Pasuk Tet, it says, On the seventh day he should shave all of his hair, his head, his beard, even his eyebrows, all his hair he should shave. And then he goes to the mikvah, and if you can think about a newborn babe, a newborn baby, all the bodily hair he doesn't have, he's emerging out of the life-giving waters. This person is now born anew as a human being who is re-entering into society, who is re-entering the world of of uh, of human beings of society. By the way, uh, we we shouldn't be surprised that. The Gemara tells us that somebody who is in a state of tzarat is considered to be a a person who is who is in a state of death. So what we have here, and what we try to describe, is this notion of the mitzorah falling into almost a, a living de- state of death, having to be, if you want, socially isolated. Um, and I don't believe this is because this is uh, infectious. Um, I know some people used to think that there was something uh, infectious or some sort of epidemic about the notion of, of Tzarat. We don't see any of that. Badadi Shev, there's the sense of death, and then the coming back to life, the purification, which is symbolized by the Tzipar, the one one bird being killed, um, but the other the other bird being let free indicating this person has now experienced a sense of release, and I'd say even more than that, a sense of rebirth. You can't stage a birth. Um, that would be difficult to do, and therefore the way we do that is by uh, achieving the death of one animal, or one bird, and the the release of the other one. By the way, the only other place where this features, this same sort of mechanism, is on Yom Kippur, with the Sa'ir Lashem and the Sa'ir L'Azazel, where we have one there here it's two birds, there it's two goats, where one goat is given to God and one goat goes out into the Midbar, goes out into the wilds, um and that is that is the the two sides. And it represents a sense of cleansing, a sense of freedom, a sense of life. Um now, of course we might want to raise the question, and it's a question which is obvious that we need to raise. Why? What happened to this person? Why were they afflicted with this sort of living death? And he, 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 the, the psukim here in Tazriya Matzorah 
maybe because they are technical parshiot, technical passages which deal with ritual impurity and purity, they do not give us any rationale. They do not give us any description. Uh, in the same way as uh, no guilt is assumed in childbirth, no guilt is assumed in any of the other functions of the body which uh, cause other forms of impurity. There are no value judgments made on the negatsarat, but we're aware that the rabbis come along and they deal with all sorts of sins which might produce the malady of tsara'at. In this regard, the things which they point at are social ills. They deal with the fact that a person is only put into quarantine, put away from the camp, badad, alone, if they have committed some offence against society. And uh, maybe this is underscored by the fact, as we mentioned earlier, that Sarat afflicts the membranes which separate us from our environment. First our skin, which separates us, our human beings, from the air. Then our clothes, which really represent something which represents us in society. And of course our homes. So what we're going to do, please God, next week when we examine um, we're going to be trying to examine some of the, well, we're going to look at Parashat Matsora itself and the particular problem of Tzarat, Tabatim, of the Tzarat, which afflicts houses. We don't get to that this week. And we're going to try and look into some of the reasons that the rabbis, the Chazal, give for Tzarat. But what we tried to do this week was really to probe into the mechanism of this phenomenon that we call Tzarat and describe the way that it manifests itself as a form of death and then a form of rebirth. I hope we've given some sort of depth and some sort of uh, mode of understanding to the world of Tumat and Tarat, purity and impurity, and we'll move ahead to try and see some of the significance to this topic, particularly the topic of Tzara'at, in our discussion next week. Thank you very much, and Shabbat Shalom.